Good morning, church. My name is Amy Frankie, and this morning we'll hear a story from God the Gospel of Luke. This is the story of Jesus' last meal on earth. You can get out your Bibles or your apps and phones and iPads and follow along. I'll be reading from the New International Version, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, glad you're here today. As you know, this is Seafarer Weekend. How many of you have done some kind of seafare activity, whether it's seeing the planes, I guess it's the Patriots this year, or boat races or parties or whatever? Anybody do any seafare kind of things? Oh, some of you, not, not a whole lot. Some of you, I watched some things on TV. Uh, about 20 years ago, we attended a wedding here on the island at Trinity Lutheran, and it was a sat- the Saturday of Seafair, and they kind of made a mistake in not checking the dates because during the ceremony came the Blue Angels over, and the whole sanctuary shook, and it was really hard to get people to actually focus on the wedding ceremony after that because you know what you want to do. You want to run out and look at those planes coming over. So I hope nobody made that mistake this weekend. But aside from being Seafair Weekend, it is, or Seafair Sunday, it's also Communion Sunday, as you can see by the table here. And I was talking to Bud before the service, and he told me, and I didn't realize this, that this table was the communion table when he came, 1967. So there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? We just repurposed it. It looks great. Well, it is Communion Sunday, and our message today, as you heard from Amy's scripture reading, is uh, from the narrative in Luke on the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. So that's what the whole message is going to be today, and I was excited to sign up for this date when it was my turn because I had something in mind already. Well, we're going to look at the names of communion because there are several names, and it depends on the church you're in, but Holy Communion is the most common. It's what we all know it as. There's also the Lord's Supper. Now, this one tripped me up when I was a kid because when we would go to the Lutheran Church back in Indiana, and they would talk about the Lord's Supper. As a five-year-old, in my head, I'm thinking, ooh, some kind of feast. Are we going to have, you know, pancakes, macaroni and cheese, ice cream, all those things that I would think you would have. And, of course, it never materialized, so it was a bit of a disappointment. But uh, I came to figure out later why it was called the Lord's Supper. Of course, it's the Last Supper, the last time Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, so it's called that. But today, we're going to focus on the term, the Eucharist. The Eucharist is sounds like a real churchy term, and it is. It's a Greek word, and this word, Eucharist, comes from eu, E-U meaning euphoric or good feeling, and charis, which means thanksgiving. Now, in some contexts, charis means grace, but in this particular one, it is Thanksgiving. And so, our meal today is the good or great Thanksgiving meal. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through the message this morning and think about what that really means. This, of course, is the perfect Thanksgiving Our family never had a perfect Thanksgiving. I don't know about yours. Everybody's happy. The food comes out perfect. That's typically not what happens. Um, 
And I was thinking about, do we treat communion, this good, great Thanksgiving meal, with the same excitement and preparation that we do our Thanksgiving meal? Think about that. Once a year, we celebrate that, and our families get together, and we have this great food. And when I was growing up, we always spent it down at my aunt's on Lake Sammamish, and she always did the turkey. We got all dressed up, used good dishes. It was a really big deal. This is my first Thanksgiving turkey that I made. I was kind of young, uh, but when we were married about four or five years, I decided I wanted to tackle that meal. So we bought the turkey. It looks pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, we bought the turkey and the roasting pan and all the things that you need to go with that. We got up early in the morning because you got to roast that thing for a long time. And I made the stuffing, so I got all my bread done. And, you know, stuffing is such a personal thing, isn't it? All of our families have this certain recipe for stuffing. It's kind of like potato salad. Like, there's only one way to do it. So I got the recipe from my mom, got everything together. We rinsed the bird. It's probably 7 o'clock in the morning, and I've got this big pan of stuffing. I take my hand, and I go to start stuffing the bird, and I get just short of the cavity, and I start to gag. I'm going, I, I can't do this. I can't put my hand in here, and I realize I couldn't put my hand inside a cavity. It just made me start to gag. So I said, Barry, you're going to have to stuff this bird. I don't know what's going on. And fortunately, he'll do anything. So that's great. He can stuff the bird. And ever since then, that's been our routine. I make all of it, but he's got to stuff it and tie up those legs. So that's my first Thanksgiving. It all went just fine. Well, today we are looking at Luke's gospel and the Passover or the Lord's Supper is in all the Gospels, but this is the one I chose to use today. And I'll tell you that I, if there is a narrative or a story that's in more than one Gospel, and it's also in Luke's, for some reason I've always been drawn to Luke's Gospel. That's sort of my go-to. And I didn't really know why, but I figured it out this week, because as I was doing some research, here's what one commentator said about Luke's Gospel. From the gospel itself, it's clear that the writer, referring to Luke, is a cultured, educated man with a wide vocabulary, and here's the kicker, and a tidy mind. He enjoys compiling, ordering, and selecting material. And I realize that's why I am drawn to Luke's gospel, because it's just this orderly, tidy gospel, and I love it. Well, Luke's gospel actually ends in the middle of the story, because he continues on in the book of Acts, which he wrote later on. And the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, is Jesus' last words to his disciples, his ascension to heaven, and the beginning of the Christian church. So we're going to get started here, going back to verses 14 through 16. You're probably all wondering, why does she have all this stuff here? It looks like I'm nesting in for a year, doesn't it? But I've got these extra books that I'm going to share with you. So let's go ahead and read verses 14 to 16 again. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles or disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Meaning, when Jesus comes back and the kingdom of God is established on earth, that's what he's talking about there. So he chose to celebrate the Passover and establish the Eucharist right before his death. That's what he chose to do hours before he was arrested, tried, and crucified. Why do you think that is? Why is that what he would choose to do with his last few hours on earth? I got to thinking, what would I do if I knew I had a few hours left on earth? Well, immediately I think I would eat all those things I'd deny myself because it wouldn't matter if I gained weight. Or I would go buy those expensive shoes because I wouldn't get the credit card bill the next month. Or I would make all these lists for my kids of do's and don'ts. My last, please read these, please obey these. What would I impart to them? But you know, I think we all realize that we would want to spend our last hours with the people we were closest to, the people that we love the most. Jesus had invested three years of emotion, of relationship, of time, of energy to prepare his disciples for what was about to come. That's what he chose to do. Well, if we read on into verses 17 to 22, or 17 to 20, it says here, I need my reading glasses. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he uh, took the, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, I just lost my battery pack. (laughs) It's my leash. I can't go anywhere. How's that? So did you catch that in Luke's gospel, he mentions two cups? He's the only gospel writer who mentions two cups. So I was looking at this too, realizing, well, where is this? Why is there this second cup here that happens before he breaks the bread? Some commentators think that he is actually mentioning the the first cup he mentions is the conclusion to the Passover meal, and the second cup that he mentions is the establishment of the Eucharist, a new meal. It's signifying the end of something and the beginning of something else. In other words, these are two different meals, and he was marking the end of one and the beginning of another. So this Passover meal was the final observance of this feast. For all that it memorialized was about to be overshadowed by the cross that was coming up in a few short hours. Jesus himself was the fulfillment of this meal, of this celebration. He became the Passover lamb, that final sacrifice. Every law, every ritual of the Old Testament was designed for the very purpose of pointing people to Jesus, the Messiah. So I also consulted with my personal theologian and scholar back in Chicago about this, and he always has something to say. 
He said here, in the standard Passover, there are four cups of wine drank through the night. Luke is highlighting the one prior to the meal and post-meal. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second is the cup of judgment. The third is uh, the cup of redemption. And the fourth is the cup of future praise. Cups two and three are most likely what Luke is referring to here. So that first cup that he has his disciples pass around is actually the cup of judgment, which would be a pretty tough cup to drink from. Then later when Jesus is in the garden and he asks the Father, take this cup from me, he's probably talking about the cup of judgment, not the cup of redemption. So the cup of redemption is the cup that is the new covenant, and it hinges upon the Passover and all the accounts of that. So what Ben says here is that other writers are just focusing on this cup of redemption and not judgment. Kind of interesting to think about. So not only did Jesus want to celebrate this final Passover with his disciples, but he also wanted to give them and us a tangible way to remember and give thanks. He knew that in a few short hours, the disciples' world would be turned upside down when they watched their leader, their Messiah, arrested, crucified, and buried. They needed something like a ritual, and we need that to continue to remember what Jesus has done for us. And he ordered his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. This wasn't a one-time thing. You will continue to do this until I return. When we partake of the Eucharist, the bread, the cup, we are reminded how much we have to be thankful for. Jesus dying for us, not only dying for us, but drinking that cup of judgment. Think about that. I would die for my kids in a heartbeat, and I know all of you would too, or for a loved one. But Jesus went beyond just dying and suffering on the cross. He took all the judgment that this world deserves, every sin, every shame, every guilt that we've ever felt, that every person has ever felt in history, all on himself when he was hanging on the cross. That's the cup of judgment that we deserve that we don't have to drink from. You know, Pastor Kevin mentioned a few weeks ago that Jesus rescued us, meaning he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How can we not be thankful for this? This good, great Thanksgiving meal the word Eucharist that means thanksgiving or Eucharisteo is a state to live in. It's a state of thanksgiving to live in. Well, my <clears throat> excuse me, inspiration for this sermon came from a book <clears throat> that, excuse me a minute, that my future daughter-in-law gave me for Christmas. Did you know I was getting a future daughter-in-law? I just love how that comes off my tongue, daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law. I just love saying that. It's kind of like when you've just 
gotten engaged and you want to continue to talk about your fiance, my, uh, here's my fiance, because it represents another level of relationship, right? And when we were engaged, instead of fiance, Barry would say my financee. So <laughs> he was sorely disappointed. So this book that she gave me for Christmas is called 1,000 Gifts. And before the title, it says, A Dare to Live Fully, Right Where You Are. Well, I hadn't picked it up until just a few months ago. And I really believe that this was God's timing for me. Because being thankful has not been easy for me lately. I've been struggling quite a bit with a health problem. You all have things that you struggle with. But this was a real challenge for me, and it has been very enlightening, and I wanted to share this with you. She talks about, her name is Ann Voskamp. She is a farmer's wife in Canada, very profound woman. And she talks about living in a state of Eucharisteo, of thanksgiving. This woman has had a difficult life. When she was a child, her little sister was killed. And she talks in the beginning of this book about how that affected her family and truly devastated each one in there and their relationship with God, how they viewed God in light of that. I'm going to read from you a little bit here. No, God, we won't take what you give. No, God, your plans are a gutted, bleeding mess, and I didn't sign up for this, and you really thought I'd go for this? No, God, this is ugly and this is a mess, and you can't get anything right. And just haul all this pain out of here, and I'll take it from here, thanks. And God, thanks for nothing. Isn't this the human inheritance, the legacy of the garden? Can you relate to that? I can relate to that. God can take it, too. He's heard it all. He can handle it, and he wants to know our hearts. She goes on to talk about how ingratitude, meaning not being thankful, is what robs us of the joy that we were intended to have. Listen to this. From all our beginnings, we keep reliving the garden story. Satan, he wanted more, more power, more glory. Ultimately, in his essence, Satan is an ingrate. And he sinks his venom into the heart of Eden. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity, the sin of ingratitude. Adam and Eve are simply, painfully ungrateful for what God gave. Isn't that the catalyst to all my sins? Our fall was, has always been, and will always be, that we aren't satisfied in God and what he gives. We hunger for something more, something other. So being thankful or giving thanks should be our way of life, but how? How can you live in a state of thankfulness when you have lost a spouse or you've lost a child or you have broken relationships when life has taken a completely different turn than what was on your roadmap. 
Well, I've taken the challenge that this author gives in her book. She begins the practice of writing down what she's thankful for every day. It's an interesting exercise. I am not a writer. I really don't even journal much. I don't like writing my thoughts down. It's very tedious for me. And I thought it was a little corny, too, to be honest with you. But I did it anyway because I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And so I thought I would read to you just a few of my entries. She has written down 1,000, hence the name of this book, 1,000 Gifts. I've only gotten up to 60, so I really have a little ways to go. But here are some things that I am thankful for because they give me joy. The moon rising over Mount Si. So many shoes. Juicy peaches. Adam's humor. Hair color. Fresh ironed sheets. Time with Ellie and Holland. Those are just a couple, and I challenge you to do the same. I realized when I started this exercise, truly how much I have to be thankful for every day. Things I never noticed before, all of a sudden I realized were gifts from God to me for that day. It's amazing to see when you look over your day how that happens. When I am living from thankfulness, I see things differently. God changes me, not necessarily the situation. You see, I recognize Jesus' presence in my life. I have holy vision. I have God's vision. When I am not seeing things that way, my vision is distorted. I am not seeing reality because I'm taking God out of the equation When I see things through God's word, it certainly changes my perspective on my situation. I have a verse that I have been using for the last few weeks that a dear friend here sent me a few weeks ago. And when I see my situation through this verse, it changes. It's from Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you. Or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. All of a sudden, things become clear. Clearer when I see things through the lens of God's word. I can be thankful because I am reminded that God is with me. God goes before me and he commands me not to be afraid or discouraged. So my vision changes. In Luke 24, a few chapters down the road here, there is a scene of two men on the road to Emmaus. It is the third day after Jesus' death. They are all thinking he's dead. There's no hope left. All their dreams have been shattered. All the plans are gone. And they're talking, and a man joins these two men. And it's Jesus himself, but they do not recognize him. And they're telling him what's gone on, and he's listening to them. And they ask him, stay for a while as we, as we have dinner. And they sat down together, and it says here that Jesus reclined at the table. He took the bread and blessed it, meaning he gave thanks for it. And in breaking it, he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, 
and they recognized him. And returning to Jerusalem, they found all that were gathered together, the 11, and they began to relate their experience to these men on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Do you see how Jesus gave thanks and in the breaking of the bread that we are going to partake in in a few minutes here? Their eyes were open to who he is. The Eucharist, Eucharisteo, giving thanks, opens our eyes to the presence of Christ in our very circumstance of life. So are you wondering, where is the joy that God has promised me? We're supposed to have this abundant, joyful life. I'm having a hard time seeing it. You know, the difference between being happy and joy is that happiness does depend on our circumstances. It comes and goes. Joy does not. Joy is directly linked to thankfulness. I remember the psalmist's words, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. See, we can recognize Jesus in our daily lives, and we can give thanks for what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he will continue to do in the future because he is faithful. So what we're celebrating today as we partake of the Eucharist and we receive these elements of Jesus' final act of sacrifice for us and proclaim our hope for the future is what Jesus instituted thousands of years ago that first night for those disciples, and he intended that to go on with us until he returns. I want to end with a quote here, and then we are going to move into communion. Eucharist is the state of the perfect man. Eucharist is the life of paradise. Eucharist is the only full and real response of man to God's creation, redemption, and gift of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good, great Thanksgiving meal before us. We thank you for giving it to us to give thanks and remember what you have done for us every day of our lives. You did what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for your broken body, your shed blood, and your taking on our judgment so that we can live free and with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.